The following podcast is an Embassy Row production. No lie, your voice counts. So this is just a friendly reminder to make sure that you are registered to vote in the upcoming elections this November. Please text the word VOTER to 26797 to check your registration. You will also receive reminders for all local, state, and federal elections and your polling locations. Don't forget to follow I Am A Voter for more civic engagement opportunities. This is Sarah Riff, and welcome to Having It All and Other Lies, the podcast where I talk to people I admire about letting go of perfection, embracing the chaos, and redefining what success and happiness look like to them. Because ultimately, the only definition that matters is our own. Hello, hello, hello. We are back in the studio today with a very, very cool guest. Please welcome Lauren Wasser to the podcast. Lauren is a model, athlete, and advocate for toxic shock syndrome awareness, having suffered complications from the bacterial infection, which can be caused by normal tampon use. Having ultimately lost both of her legs, Lauren is now modeling again and using her platform to push boundaries of resilience, inclusivity, and standards of beauty, all of which she exemplifies so seamlessly. Lauren, you are such a warrior and I'm so happy you could be here today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited. I'm so excited. How are you doing? I'm amazing. I am so blessed. I'm very lucky and fortunate and just in a good spot and ready to take over the world. And yeah. That feels counterintuitive to literally everything else (laughs) that everyone is saying. So like, I want to absorb some of what you have going on. Like talk about your blessings. Um, My blessings uh, that I'm alive. Yeah. I can weather the storm. I run every day, which I highly recommend to anyone to try to just get themselves moving and the way to kind of download and be with yourself because we're so fixated on everything that's going on around us. It's just a way to kind of just be within yourself and everyone's thoughts and things happen in life and this is not going to be forever. It's temporary. I think this reset was very necessary for the whole world to kind of see what life is really about and to appreciate what we have in front of us. Because as you know, life is busy and we all are on to the next thing and we never really digest where we are and be present with our families, our friends, our loved ones. And so I think this time has really generated that for, I think, the world and to really put in place what's important. Yeah. I love that so much. I'm just trying to seep in all that you're giving, all your positivity and all your vibes. So starting at the beginning, I want you to tell us everything. Where did you grow up? What did you want for your life? Did you have a vision of what having it all looked like for you? I did. I I grew up in Los Angeles. My mom and dad are both models. I grew up when- What is that like? What does that mean? (laughs) So it's interesting. My mom is a badass, if I can say that. She was a big supermodel. She was like with Sydney Crawford and Stephanie Seymour and all of those heavy hitters in the 90s when being a supermodel was everything. And you were didn't have plastic surgery and you didn't have anything. It was just based on- Right. Actual- Beauty. Genetics. Yeah, and beauty. exactly. And it was interesting because that's how I grew up. I grew up in you know the 90s and my mom was a single mom. So I grew up with her traveling the world and going to Paris, London, New York, and you know her pushing me in the snow and- you remember the Thomas guides back in the day? Like we didn't have, you know, freaking iPhones Ways, and stuff. Right. So my mom would literally be in freezing cold, like trying to figure out where casting was. Like, I just remember all this stuff and, you know, just seeing her being perfect and never leaving the house without makeup and being 
literally a goddess as she just walks to Ralph's, you know, right. you know, where I am the complete opposite where like, I don't give a shit. I'm just like, yeah, total non-goddess sitting in front of me. <laughs> I mean, I think in my own unique way, I'm a goddess. Uh, but, you, like um, we're all goddesses. Yeah, definitely. Are you kidding me? So what was that like for you growing up having a mom who just, I'm sure she was a great mom, but also uh, like the external was a, a real focus. Did that impact you? Yeah, because it was just this, she still is. I mean, my mom still looks the same, but it's just interesting to see like perfection and then seeing Stephanie Seymour and Cindy Crawford and, you know, all of these women that are literally perfect. And to just see that 1%, it really was kind of like a, a mind, if I can say the F word, you know. Um, Permission granted. Uh, mind fuck. Yes. Um, <laughs> definitely growing up seeing that because that was something that I, I didn't really care about. I played basketball, so I was more of a tomboy. But it was always in the back of my mind, obviously, the perfection side and just seeing how she carried herself and the fact that she literally wouldn't leave the door unless she looked perfect. So I think that definitely played a role in how I grew up. And Did you saw rebel beauty. against that, do you think? Still, I still do. Yeah. You know, my mom's always like, don't wear that. Like, don't, you know, like, can you fix your hair? Can you? And I'm just like, I don't give a shit. I'm just. Right. Although I will say it's like you don't give a shit, but like shame about your genetics because. <laughs> The only reason not giving a shit works for you is because uh, obviously you look the way that you do. Well, thank you. It's I quite a different that. thing for like the rest of us to just be like, oh, well, we don't give a shit. It looks different coming out the door. All right. But well, so it. having it all, was that sort of like, I want to be a model. I want to be like my mom. Or were you just renouncing that life? Hell no. I definitely didn't want to. I, you know, it's funny because like they would always, all the agents would always like try to be like, you know, Lauren, do you want to do this? And I was an Italian Vogue when I was four months old shot by Patrick Demache. Yeah. And NBD <laughs> uh, with my mom, you know, and it kind of just kind of trickled from there as far as just being in, in the industry and always them wanting me to model. But I was always just focused on basketball. I thought I was going to be in the WNBA. I Basketball was my first love and being an athlete was so important to me and just beating up all the guys. I would just play basketball literally from morning to sunlight. That's all I cared about. So yeah, I really thought I was going to be banking on endorsements in the WNBA because you know, I look like Maria Sharapova and <laughs> I could probably get away with, right. you know, that using my beauty for that and obviously being talented, but yeah, well, a lethal combination. And was that WNBA was not as such of a thing at mm -hmm. that point. Right. So it's like, that felt like a very realistic goal. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I was in basketball camps. I had a full scholarship to play basketball. It was my life and I, and I loved every second of it. And so I think that was just a difference between my mom and I. She was a ballet dancer. She, you know what I mean? She's so girly and mm -hmm. I'm just like the complete opposite. When you were looking at sort of building your life, was it obviously you're focusing on the career and the athletics? Do you imagine, do you want to stay in LA? Do you want to have a family? Do you want to be a career person? Do you want to be a single mom? You want to not be a mom, you know? Yeah. I mean, I, I definitely had aspirations of hopefully going to the NBA and mm -hmm. kind of seeing what happens, but I've always wanted to be a mom. I have three furry children as we speak, but um, eventually I hope to have my little offspring running around and probably being a little demon. Potentially furry as well. <laughs> yeah, giving it back to probably what my mom had to deal with. And I wonder like how, <laughs> how much further like the Matryoshka dolls, is that what they are? Oh, yeah. Because I saw a photo of your mom and you guys look a lot mm -hmm. alike. So yeah. it just it's like the little versions of, yeah. you know, and keep making smaller versions. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so at this stage, you say you get a scholarship to play basketball. Are you playing in school? Yeah, I played in school. And then, you know, I was modeling at that time too. So I was traveling a lot. And then, you know, contracts were a big thing back then. And 
I was overseas and, you know, my high school was really annoying about me traveling a lot and kind of gave me a lot of shit for it. But yeah, then I just decided I was going to model. Right. Okay. So you're overseas. Yeah. Is that something you're enjoying doing? It is, but it's also just not my, like you see me now, like I, I just walk in and just do my thing. I'm not about like being catty or not just so many girls take it so serious. And it's kind of like, it's just a joke. Like it's not that crazy. Right. You know? And especially back then, girls were just extra. Well, I'm sure they're still extra right now. But <laughs> I'm sh- I, also, it's like you had to see really catty behavior for your mom and witness the effects of what that does to a person. And obviously, mm-hmm. do you feel like as far as deriving identity from external versus interior, is that something that has been a part of your journey? Definitely. I definitely think that you know, me going through my whole experience and having to really dig deep and figure out what life is about, you know, the outer shells are just vessels. We're all here on this planet for a purpose. And the way that you look doesn't define your journey and who you are. It's just your vessel. And what really matters is the message that you leave when you're no longer here. And it's the things and the the way that you impact the world and hopefully in a positive way. So that way, when you are gone, you leave something for the generations to come. And I think that's what is impactful and important. Okay. So you're referencing some of, you know, when you say some of the things that I went through for our listeners today, Mm -hmm. can you tell us a little bit? I know that you had an incident that happened when you were 24, Mm -hmm. but can you tell us what led up to that and what that was like for you? Yeah, I was 24. I was living in Santa Monica. My first time living alone, I had been using super absorbent tampons as far as I can remember. I'm also a super absorbent tampon user. So yeah, my period is very heavy and I'd been using the same brand for 11 years and that morning I'd woken up and I kind of felt off, like the flu was going around. It was October. And so I'm very athletic. I used to ride my bike to the beach like 30 miles. So hygiene is very important to me. And that morning I came back and I just felt really sick and like really off. And I changed my tampon Mm -hmm. again in the afternoon from that morning and still felt really off. And all my girlfriends were texting me because it was a friend of ours birthday And they were like, well, you don't have to come, blah, blah. And I was like, well, I'll just let you know how I feel later on. Still sitting in bed, still feeling like shit. It came like five o'clock. And I was like, all right, well, I'm just going to hop in the shower. I changed my tampon again, obviously. And I'm like, I'm just going to show face. So I drive myself to my friend's birthday and I walk in and literally I felt like a train had just literally ran me over. And all my friends looked at me and they're like, dude, you look like death. Like you should probably head home. And I drove myself back to my apartment. My mom and I are very close and she hadn't heard from me. I was extremely hot, but because at this point I was accumulating 107 fever, my brain was literally frying and all I wanted was my bed. So I took off all of my clothes. My mom was really worried about me. She had just had surgery, so she was bedridden and she lived far away from me. She lived in Riverside. So she called for a welfare check. After not hearing from you for how long? For for a couple hours. Uh So she called for the welfare check. And at this point, all I remember is being in my bedroom on the floor. I still have my blind... Uh, she's blind. She wasn't deaf then, but she's blind and deaf now. Literally barking on my chest, Cocker Spaniel, like ferociously barking at me because she knew something was wrong. And then I kind of came to out of my like delusion mm-hmm. and I heard the cop and I heard police, police open the door. And I was so confused. I'm like, what the hell? I could barely get to the door. And the cop came in and he looks at me and he's like, you're really sick. And he's like, your mom's really worried about you. I'm like, okay. At this point, I'm like, well, what are you doing here? Like, I'm literally like not feeling well. So why are you And you're here? just not thinking clearly. I'm not anyways. thinking clearly. And honestly, even if I think back, I would never have, how do you say it? Anticipated, anticipated or, thought, or 
uh, I couldn't have differentiated the this fact from a flu. the flu being the flu or is it my tampon? I'd never, I mean, my mom told me about TSS and toxic shock, but it was always because if you left your tampon in too long, which is definitely not what happened to me. I changed it throughout the day as I normally did. And I would have never thought like that was causing me to feel like death. Like I was literally dying. Like this was killing me. So the cop literally looked around my apartment. He said, you're really sick. And he just fucking left me. So there was no thought for him to say like, do you need an ambulance? Do you want me to take you in? And the crazy thing to me, like now it really hurts me is because obviously that's kind of my job now is to inform first responders and anyone who shows up to a scene of an accident to ask a woman, of course, like, do you have a tampon in? Because that's important. If, you know, you get in a car accident, you're plummeting and dying and you have something toxic inside of you, it's only going to make things worse. Of course. And the reason, you know, I even said the thing about super absorbent tampons is because just in terms of normalizing the conversation around it, Mm -hmm. even in your retelling of this story, you're referencing changing your tampons several times. Mm -hmm. Full disclosure, I probably have not done that all the time. You know, like I always thought it was a certain amount of time and obviously we'll get to this, but I don't know that there's that much education or conversation around it mm-hmm. to it, inform people that that's something that even needs to be happening. Yeah. And I, and I think too, it's, it goes hand in hand with the lack of education, but also I think tampon companies have done a really good job of always making it your fault mm-hmm. um, and not taking accountability for putting chlorine, bleach, dioxin, all these synthetic fibers and a product that we put inside of us in the most sensitive part of our bodies at the most sensitive time, which creates, you know, the perfect storm. And unfortunately, it's a billion dollar industry and they have gotten away with this for before I was even born for over 30 years. So, so the cop is there. He says, you're obviously super sick. Yeah, I'm super sick. And he just leaves me. I go plug in my phone. My mom's Mm-hmm. hysterical. She's like, are you okay? Do you need an ambulance? And I'm like, mom, I just am really sick. Uh, the cop was just here. I don't think I need an ambulance. Had I needed an ambulance, I think he would take me. I just want to sleep. That didn't sit well with my mom. She then called for another welfare check. She called for all of her friends, all of my friends to come. Cops came back. It took them 30 minutes to get in my apartment. I was face down on my bedroom floor, 10 minutes from death. My kidneys, my organs were failing. I had two heart attacks. They put me on life support. And given a 1% chance of survival. So at this Um, point, they have taken you into a hospital. Yeah, at this point, I was in a hospital, but literally clinging to life. And thank God at St. John's, there was an infectious disease doctor on call. And he had said, well, does she have a tampon in it? And once they located the tampon and sent it to the lab and it came back as TSS-1, they were able to treat me properly. And I was more susceptible to the medicine that they were giving me. Well, Um, what's crazy is just to imagine someone who's young and healthy and 24 years old turning on a dime like that. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden having organ failure from something that we're using every single day in our bodies. Okay. Please continue. Yeah. So then, um, they rushed me to St. John's and then, you know, they placed me on the, in a medically induced coma and they had to pump me full of 200 pounds of fluid, 80 pounds of fluid to get all the toxins out of my system. So when I woke up from the medically induced coma from like a week and a half later, I was huge. Where are you mentally right now? Like, are you cognizant? Are you... I had just woken up from the coma. So I was just literally seeing everything for the first time. But the problem was I had tubes in my throat, so I couldn't talk. And it was the absolute worst because I knew everything that was happening around me, but I couldn't communicate to anyone. 
my mom gave me like a piece of paper and I was so fucking thirsty. All I wanted was water, but they couldn't give me water because I had the tubes and all this shit. So I was just like, so it was really mentally crazy. Like I feel bad for people that are there, but they can't move, but they're mentally aware. I mean, that is torture. And that's kind of like how I felt when I woke up. Cause I was like, like you couldn't. felt sort of alive inside. And yeah. But like, this. I couldn't really communicate like what happened. Like I had to write and it took me a few minutes to even get my fingers to properly write. And all I could say was like water. Cause I was like dying right. of thirst. So but, like the disconnect between your sort of and mental I, space yeah. and then your physical abilities. And then all the machines. And I just remember seeing this huge jar of black tar by my bed when I woke up and I remember the lady changing it. And I was like, what is that? And she was like, it's the toxins from me that was literally killing me. Black tar that had come out of your body? Like the toxins, it was in a jar and they had taken the, that's why they pumped me full of so much fluid to get them out because that's what was killing me. It was in my bloodstream. That was really surreal. And I still remember that vividly. But How um, long were you in the hospital? I was at St. John's for a few days. One thing I do remember is that my feet were in excruciating pain. I felt like someone was literally sitting there lighting my foot on fire and they needed to get me to UCLA in order to get me into hyperbaric chamber. Uh, it's an oxygen chamber that produces 200% oxygen. So it gets all your blood flowing to the areas that need it most. And my feet were severely damaged. So they needed to get the blood flow there. So I got rushed there and then, you know, did hyperbaric chamber for three, four hours a day trying to get things going. But unfortunately the damage was irreversible and gangrene had set into my right leg and into my left foot as far as my toes and my heel went. And so they were basically saying like, we need to save your life. Like, I'm sorry, but we're going to have to amputate your right leg. My left foot was given a 50-50 chance of survival as far as like, I probably wouldn't have toes and my heel would be damaged, but who knows if it would work or not, but it was up to me to make that decision. And so at this point, are you a little bit more capable as far as communicating? Oh, yeah. When the woman, I remember the woman walked in, uh, she was on the phone with St. John. She was trying to get me a bed into UCLA. And I remember her talking behind a curtain. And this is the first time that I had been by myself in this room without my mom, my godfather, anyone. And I remember her saying, I have a, I have a healthy, young 24-year-old girl who's going to need a right leg below the knee amputation. And so we need a room. And I fucking flipped out. I started screaming. I was crying. I was like, you can't be talking about me. This is not real life. Like amputation, like what? Like, right. For, especially because it's like, if you have someone who's been going through a health trauma and they're slowly but surely kind of wrapping their minds around acceptance of mm -hmm. various things that they have to do, but mm -hmm. you were literally like two days prior just a normal 24-year-old, healthy, active. Well, a, week, a week after my coma, but yeah. But just to have gone from zero to 60 like that. I yeah. That was kind of just the first where I realized that like shit was real. And like me just opening my eyes wasn't even the beginning. The fight was just, just beginning. And so how long post that conversation did they transfer you for the first amputation? Like a day or two. And then... They had the conversation with me once I got to UCLA and I had to sign fucking papers to say like, it's okay to literally take my leg away and also debride my heel because it was severely damaged and also take my toes away on my left side because I didn't want to amputate both of my legs because that would have just been fucking insane to have to have no legs. Like, I, I, I don't know. I just couldn't have fathomed that. And I knew in my heart that like God would have me and I would figure it out. But I'm the type of person that like, I have to exhaust all of my options before I can make a definitive answer. And I feel like that was something that, you know, you can't just be like, yeah, let me just 
do this. It was something I couldn't of even. What wrap is my the head process around. like in terms of? Because obviously we're talking about the physicality of it and about having to do this, obviously, to save your life. Mm -hmm. And you're suffering so much physical trauma in this moment, but then mentally and emotionally, I can't imagine what you're going through just being confronted with this new reality and so quickly and like the pace of like, we have to do this. And like you said, you're signing waivers. Does someone come in and talk to you? Is there a therapist component to it all? Yeah. I mean, I had a therapist, but also, you know, that there were amputees coming in and talking to me and, you know, my mom, uh, God bless her. I love her to death. She never left my side, but she was trying her best to try to see the potential of what possibly I could have in my life and that life wasn't over. But to see these people come in with these robot looking legs and, you know, I had this one psycho doctor come in and he had literally a suitcase full of legs like different prosthetics and shit. And I was just like, this is not it, bro. Like, this is not what you need to be showing me right now. Like, I don't, this is not what I want. I don't want this life. Like, this is crazy. I couldn't even like, that's going to be like my leg. Like, no, get, get out of here. So, and especially, like I said, coming from the physicality of my whole life, this was something that I couldn't even digest. I was just angry and upset and so heartbroken. And right. Like you're saying, it's like, and not to diminish it for anyone, but it's like you're someone for whom your physical appearance is such mm -hmm. a big part of your identity. Mm -hmm. And this whole thing is just mind blowing. I can't imagine. So you sign the waiver, you go through that process. I sign the waiver, I go through all the process and this is the crazy thing. And not a lot of people know this, but because I had two heart attacks, my heart was really fragile. And I guess during surgery, my heart was acting up a little bit. And so I came out of the surgery with no right leg. My foot was debris on the left side and my toes were still there because they wanted to see how they were going to do. But the doctor literally looked at me and was like, because your heart was acting up, we cannot give you pain medicine for the next 24 hours. No. Yeah. And I was still coming out of it. So I was like, whatever, like what? Like, what does that even mean? They fucking put me in a room and... For 24 hours, I couldn't have anything. I was screaming in the top of my lungs. I was throwing shit at the freaking doors. I was screaming for my mom. My mom actually had to like walk away holding her ears because she just couldn't, there was nothing anyone could do. And that was probably the most horrific part was that I was literally suffering. Like I literally felt like jaws had just ripped off my leg and I just had to endure it. There was nothing anyone could do. It's crazy jumping back to when you came in and, you know, saying that you feel blessed right now and, and putting that in perspective, understanding a little bit more of what you've gone through. You've walked through the fire. And I wonder if that gives you a certain bravery and a certain acceptance and a certain advantage in a way over everybody where it's like, we all walk through life being worried about what could happen. And like you have endured quite possibly the worst things that a person can go through and have come out the other side with so much awareness of yourself and awareness of the fragility of life that I wonder if it helps you just keep everything in perspective. Yeah. I mean, I, I had a 1% chance of survival. The fact that I'm alive, thriving and able to, to live a beautiful life. I, I think that in itself is just so beautiful. And I'm just so grateful because I've experienced the absolute worst. And so I know what it's like. And you know, every single person on this planet is is battling something, whether it's physical, mental, whether it's just this, the most simple thing, but to them, it's everything. And everybody's journey is different. And you could never, I could never look at her or you and say, I'm 
have been through more than you have or everybody's different and everyone has their own stories. And I think that's what makes us beautiful and unique in our own ways is because we've all had to endure things, but it doesn't depreciate anything about the individual, you know? So it's like, people always say like, you've been through X, Y, and Z. It's like, yeah, but you've also faced things in your life that someone else possibly couldn't handle or deal with too. So I think we all have our strengths. And that's a really cool way of looking at it. Oh my God, Lauren. So, okay. So you go through this night and then obviously there's such a space between there and where you are now. Mm -hmm. What do you think were the key factors for you in terms of not only overcoming the physicality of it, but just getting into this mental place that you are today, coming from a place of acceptance, coming from a place of gratitude, because I'm sure that was a lot of work. Oh yeah. I mean, I, I went through the ringer, you know, after, after that happened of having my amputation, I had to go to Cedar sinai where I had to spend a month in rehab. So I went from St. John's UCLA to Cedars and it was all like four or five months out of my life, just trying to get to a stable place where I could actually go back into society. But my head was shaved. I was still plumped up from the 200 pounds of fluid. I had to be in a wheelchair for eight months because my left side was still unpredictable back into a society that I had only lived as one being and going back into it completely in shambles and not even knowing who I am and what, why am I here? What is my purpose? Like my whole identity of who I thought I was and knew of myself was completely gone. And I think the reason why I held on too, I mean, when I got back home, I I almost killed myself. There were so many days where I'd cry in the shower and be so angry at God as to why this happened to me. But there was something inside of me that just said, hold on. And I know it was him because this is my purpose. My purpose is bigger than myself. My purpose is bigger than my vessel. Something like this had to happen to someone like myself for people to wake up and pay attention. And my little brother at the time was 14, 13, and he was coming home from school every day. And had I killed myself, he would be the one to find me. And I knew that that would be so unfair because then he would have to live with that burden and know that I had given up. And I'd rather show him something that, you know, no matter what happens in life, you just got to get back up you got to figure it out. And so that was kind of my inspiration and also my mom. And also just seeing that toxic shock had been killing and injuring so many women before myself and no one had ever heard about it. And I felt like I was just the messenger and, you know, it was my duty to kind of be the whistleblower and allow women to understand and to realize that this never did go away. It just kind of got shoved under the rug and no one ever talks about it. And I'm just lucky that I was able to get away with my life and being able to, you know, sit here with you now and hopefully inspire people and educate people and make people more aware of, you know, the power that they have within themselves. Right. Well, let's talk about the toxic shock of it all. Obviously, once the infectious disease doctor came, saw that you had a tampon in, they were able to draw the conclusion Mm -hmm. that this was what was happening, right? Mm -hmm. And that caused organ failure. For me growing up, I remember, you know, maybe reading in like YMs or Teen Vogue, those very infrequent kind of blurbs about TSS, Mm -hmm. but it was not something as a young woman who was beginning menstruating and using those products that are being marketed to us all of the time, right? Mm -hmm. With like really fun, flashy images of girls Mm -hmm. like playing volleyball and on bikes and whatever. Mm -hmm. There's really nothing, there's no conversation about the dangers of it. And how is it possible that there's not more information when half of our society are using these products that when you just said dipped in chlorine, dipped in, what were the other toxic? Bleach, rayon. um, And that you're putting those in your body. Mm -hmm. 
full disclosure, I I wasn't aware of all of those things. Yeah. And, and sometimes it even says et cetera. It's like, what the hell does et cetera mean? Mm-hmm. You know, and how are these companies getting away with writing that? But, you know. You mean they're saying bleach, toxic dyes, et cetera? It's like very vague. Like, what does that even mean? Uh-huh. You know? But yeah, there is not a lot of discussions about it. But also I think periods for a really long time have been a taboo subject. Mm-hmm. You know, I think even tampon companies have gotten away with making advertising it as, you know, a very discreet way for you to hand it to your girlfriend in the club or don't talk about it or, you know, it's a gross subject. And it's like, we're all women. Like we are superhuman. We create life. Like we have babies. I think the fact that we have periods and, you know, we have a discussion, we can learn so much from each other and have the open conversations about what products to use and how something's affecting us or, you know, the dangers of something. If you may not know that this product does X, Y, and Z, now you know because you're talking about it. But I think that's another thing that has gone hand in hand with tampon companies because they're so, you know, it's a billion dollar industry. Well, and like you said, it's all marketed under the guise of discretion and something you're sort of, you know, it's a secret. You're kind of embarrassed about it. So they play on that. And that's how they've kind of gotten away with it, you know, as many years as they have until this day. I mean, you know, I think that one of the main reasons why I am alive is because I realized I wasn't alone. And I felt like it was my duty to, you know, say, hey, this is a huge problem. And like, I got away with it. But this young woman just lost her life. I mean, I can't tell you since I've shared my story in 2015, how many women around the entire world have come to me and written me and said, I'm a victim of TSS. You know, I've lost my daughter. I've lost my wife. I've lost my mom. And that's where it hurts me is because those women should be here. A tampon should not kill someone. I mean, we're in a, we're a day and age where we can make the technology to make it safer and to make this not happen, but because of greed and because it's cheaper to pay out lawsuits or to make it with chlorine bleach and, you know, all these horrible things, they'd rather put your life in jeopardy. Right. So I know that obviously you have been using your platform in an effort to advocate for awareness for TSS Mm -hmm. and to work with Congress, I think, Mm -hmm. as far as passing a bill that I want to say has been rejected like 10 times. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that's changed since... You had shared that? It's a bill out of New York with a Congresswoman, Carolyn Maloney. And I had the pleasure of meeting with her finally, I think last year, face to face. And it's a bill called the Robin Danielson Act. And it's it's named after a woman who died of TSS in 1998. So this happened to me in 2012. So 1998, that's a long time to change something. And they've been been working on that bill since then. They've been working on that bill since then. But that woman died and then, you know, they had kept reintroducing it, kept re- and it's just for us to know what's going in these feminine hygiene products and, you know, what the long-term effects are going to have on our bodies internally. What is this product going to do to me if I use it for three months, five years, 10 years? What's happening? We should be aware and, and know these things, right? Because it's simple. It was literally denied 10 times. Under what guy? So this is all just about having better transparency. Yeah, just for them about to- About the ingredients. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And, you know, the congresswoman and I had met and she looked at me and, and she said- Had this bill passed, I probably would have my legs. And that hurt her because she felt like she in some somehow, some shape or form failed. And I also had her speak to a mom who had just recently lost her little girl, 18 years old in New Jersey from toxic shock syndrome. And for her to hear that mother cry and to know that a tampon had taken her little girl and ripped her of living a beautiful life. 
that was important for me to share with her because I needed her to know that this is still a very huge issue and we need to join forces as women and do our best to make change. What could we do? I mean, I just think of all the women that we know and everything that we try to do to raise awareness, you know, listen, on the on the very low end, I know a lot of people who are trying to go clean in their homes and mm-hmm. we look at the endocrine disruptors and the different cleansers that we use. And, you know, there's a lot less conversation. I know that there are some organic tampon companies and obviously there's brands like Thinks mm-hmm. that make the underwear. Yeah. But as women, I just feel like we're unstoppable when we work together. And I wonder if there's anything that you think on a practical level we could be doing to better allow for passing this bill or getting involved. It's a conversation. I think, you know, we're not going to win this war overnight. It's obviously going to take time. It may even take my entire lifetime for this to, to actually make change. And I'm okay with that because that's my job. That's my purpose here. But I think just raising awareness and getting, you know, everyone aware of the dangers of these products. And I love Thinks. I think that's amazing. And especially the people that are really more susceptible to getting TSS are the young ones. You know, these girls are getting their periods now eight, nine, 10 years old because of all the hormones and the food and developing at a very young age. And now they're using these products that are completely toxic. And then you think about the single parent homes, the parents that are not from here, that you know, are from a different country or you have the young girls who are scared to have the conversation because it's an awkward topic. I think normalizing the conversation first is really important for everyone, for men, women. I think men need to be aware for the, the women that are in their lives. But I think knowing what you're putting inside of your body, being aware that pretty much the name brand tampons that we've all grown up with and know that are in every grocery store on shelves are not healthy for you. Not Do you for use you. tampons today? No, I can never. never. And I would never. I don't think anything's supposed to go up there first and foremost. I think that blood needs to come out. Mm-hmm. I mean, I know that's a little crazy to no, say it's, out loud, it's, it's not true. crazy to say out loud. This but, is the whole thing yeah, about yeah, normalizing yeah. the conversation. Yeah, I mean, it's just, I think that blood's not supposed to be there. I think it's going out of our bodies for a reason. And I think we just put something especially toxic, kind of like a corkscrew. You're creating the perfect storm. Right. Of all the bacteria and the, because toxic shock is actually, it's a bacterial infection from what you say is this breeding ground of essentially having this toxic. Yeah. It's like, and then it gets in your bloodstream and goes to all your organs and starts acting like it's the flu, but really it's your tampon and you keep changing. And, you know, once it gets inside your bloodstream, it's pretty much just starting to kill you. So it's really dangerous. Right. Well, and thank God for all the work that you are doing and raising the awareness about something that should be so second nature to all of us, considering that this is something that happens to us once a month. You know what I mean? I mean, I always say if men's dicks were falling off, like this would not be an issue. I mean, well, that's a bigger (laughs) conversation. It's like, if you look at like the pink tax and the fact that we're paying for all these things and that if you look at ED or various issues that affect men only. But again, I imagine when Carolyn is trying to take this in front of Congress, it's just a bunch of old dudes. And what do they care? It's all men. And that's the problem is that all these people that are in Congress and making all these bills, they don't have an expiration date. Like we have a president, we can kick out in four months, I mean, four years. Uh, I mean, I mean we're trying. But these people that are making these decisions are usually been there forever. And they just collect, you know, the money and it's just whatever. But it's usually white men and it's... Talk about toxic. <laughs> yeah. Right here today, you sit 
obviously confident in your position as someone who's been sent with a higher purpose. Mm -hmm. I'm sure, like you said, it took a long time to get here. How did you get from A to B? Just digging deep and really realizing that what you see doesn't matter. It's about the inside. It's about your heart. It's about being bigger than yourself. And I think at, at a point it just got to the fact that I've like, I have my life back and I knew I had a, a job to do and I knew that this wasn't the end. And I just had to literally build myself from the ground up inside and out and really just make a move. And, you know, I loved gold. So, and I loved Aesop Rocky with the gold teeth. So I was like, yeah. why not just have gold ass legs and just wear jewelry all the time? Were those much. your first legs? But no, my first legs weren't gold, but they, I hated it. I hated it for a really long time. I used to sit in my wheelchair and I remember just looking at the leg and like the thing about prosthetics is they're so expensive. They're right. so expensive and insurance, God forbid any of anybody in here ever gets hit by a car or like has anything, but your insurance will only pay for a peg leg. They won't pay for a leg and a foot that allows you to move the a way that you- A peg leg, which would basically just be the I mean, piece it's of, not a, like a, I mean, but the no, piece it's of not, wood. It's not like a pirate. I'm, like, I'm imagining like <laughs> there's definitely a parrot involved. I mean, in honestly, it said. feels like that because it, it's it's like you're just hitting the- yeah. like it, There's no movement. There's no flex. It's literally just a clunky leg. And that was something that I struggled with. So how do you give someone, a human being, their life back when you're giving them something that is just can barely function? Thank God I, I am sponsored by a, a prosthetic company and they give me my legs. My feet are, you know, $20,000, but that's because I'm sponsored by the company. I'm so grateful, but so many people who have things happen to them are not. And, and thank God I had insurance, but the good insurance that I did have, that's what it covered. And so that was what I was given. And, and for me personally, going through, you know, a wheelchair to that, I'm like, how the hell, and I'm an athlete, how the hell am I going to make this myself? How am I ever going to like be function normal? And I hid myself a really long time. I, I wore like sweat, sweatpants and hoodies. I tried to walk without a limp. So no one would tell that I like didn't have a leg and that I had half a foot. I was just so ashamed. And so like, what was the reception from your sort of social circle coming back after this? Because you've also been in the hospital now for like, what, eight months total? Uh, yeah, it was like four months. And then I, I hid in my room for a really long time. But I, I just felt so much love when I did come to to realize that I did have so much support and I'm grateful to have the support system because I think that's so key in recovery and any type of recovery to have that team to push you. It's crazy too, because in the Bible, it always says that God will give you beauty for your ashes. And I really live by that because I, I cannot tell you after I had amputated my second leg, because I was in such excruciating pain, I finally got my life back. And I think that's the beauty of my story is that this doesn't define me, but it, it didn't destroy me either. Gave me something that is priceless. And I just got a new set of legs, you know, and I'm so grateful that I can do the things that I love to do. And I can still be on this planet and call my mom and say, I love you. And to be in my brother's life and to, you know, life just kind of fully just came back around to what was really important. And actually having to dig deep and redefine myself has allowed me to live such a beautiful life because I see the meaning of it. And you're modeling again, but now you referenced before sort of the catty nature of a lot of it and the superficiality, mm -hmm. but you're doing so now to push the boundaries mm -hmm. of inclusivity and mm -hmm. what we define as beautiful in addition to raising awareness for mm -hmm. something that is obviously so important and, and close to you. Do you feel like 
it was all sort of a higher purpose and also on a practical level that it's giving you your own lane. As far as modeling, there's a million beautiful people, right? Mm -hmm. And it didn't seem like it resonated with you so much before. It was kind of secondary to basketball. Do you find now that it's given you like a whole new career purpose as well? Yeah, redefining beauty and what beauty really is. And, you know, I'm always having to fight for my position in this industry. I'm always trying to, you know, have people not put me in a box or label me because honestly, I can do anything and everything. I mean, there's not one thing that I can't do. I just have golden legs. You know, if I could go to plastic surgeon right now and get my legs back, I probably wouldn't. But I'm back and I'm stronger than ever. And yeah, I'm more unique than I'm the only one on this planet who has gold legs and looks the way I do. And that's my strength. And I think that's fucking cool. I have my own lane. I stand for my own purpose. And I think the industry is opening up and is being like, if this should happen to me 10 years ago, this would not be right. acceptable it, by any means. Don't you feel like the industry is sort of meeting you yeah, where you are now? Because mm-hmm. culture, mm-hmm. especially in this moment that we're in, we're all reassessing and it's about opening up doors for people that look all sorts of Mm -hmm. different ways. We need representation of all shapes, colors, sizes, Mm -hmm. everything. And in terms of it creating something that's more dimensional too, Yeah, you know, it's like everything has to be purpose-driven right now. And that's what you represent more than anything. I feel like I have this weird thing that I fight all the time is that I see myself as that girl that 24-year-old girl where there was no limitation. I didn't have shit. I was just like those girls. I still feel like I'm those girls. But now it's like, I constantly have to remind myself, like, bitch, you have gold legs. Like, you actually have no legs. Like, you're in an industry that's, like, defined on one thing. And, like, you're fucking killing it. You're doing your job. And it's not going to happen overnight. But what I've been able to do is groundbreaking. And also, I feel like it's just important for the industry to realize we're so tired of looking at basic girls walk down the runway. Who cares? The fact is that there is someone that looks like someone that needs to be represented for how someone feels, looks, and is on this planet because that's the power behind everything is that someone could stand in front of you and you can feel like that person represents you and it feels like you're not alone, that there is someone that is in that position that is just as beautiful, that you can do just as much as they can. What do you think is next for you? What are your goals? Do you have markers for you that would define success or are you a little bit more fluid? I'm, I'm really fluid in the sense of, I just want to be on top, whatever it is. I want to be a fucking supermodel. I want to be an actress, but I want to be a funny actress. I just shot a Shado campaign. So I was in Japan and the stylist was putting the shoe on and they, you know, they're so polite over there. I love Japan. It's like my favorite, but he was putting the shoe on and I was joking. I was like, ah, Oh my God. And I mean, he jumped back with all the whole team was like, <laughs> I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I'm like, man, I don't feel shit. I was just kidding. You know, like I just love like, <laughs> I just love like playing off of it. Cause you know, it's just fun. Like you like to make fun of myself. It's yeah. Hilarious. It's also, I'm sure so disarming <laughs> because it's like, I know, but that's the beauty of it. From all the wild journey that you've been on to sitting where you are today at peace with your purpose and your sense of identity, What does having it all look like to you today? Being confident and accepting your journey. Also just being present and not trying to just be so fast all the time and to just really absorb where you are in your life and the people are around you and, you know, to not be so hard on ourselves. I think we're always really, really hard on ourselves and 
the expectations that we put on ourselves and our families or whatever is doesn't need to be all that. I think it's just accepting where you are and knowing that no matter what is in front of you, no matter what you're facing in life, it's just temporary and that you're going to persevere and you just have to keep going. And I think a lot of that is the fear that we all have within, especially right now. But past that fear is the beauty of the unknown and persevering through that and seeing the aha moments of why you endured what you did. And I think that's priceless. So encouraging everyone to just hold on and to just really take a second to appreciate where they are, that they're allowed to be sad and upset, but they're alive, they're breathing. Hopefully they have their health. And if they don't have their job, they'll get another one. I think it's just being optimistic and knowing that no matter what happens, there's going to be something better after. God, Lauren for president. I, I need more Laurenisms in my life, less Sarahisms. I need less Sarah in my head and more Lauren. What's something that you do? We call it the riff. What's something that you do that makes your life better, easier? It could be a practice, a service, a product, just like something silly, but like, is there something that you feel like makes your day more efficient or more centered or? Yeah. Running for me, I'd have to say, I, I'm at a point with that where like I get anxiety about if I don't run, I'm like, Oh, I got to run. Like it's psychotic. But, um, do you listen to music when you're running? I do. I listen to music and I also love going by the beach and running just the fresh air and just being by the ocean is something so Zen to me. When I, when this first happened, I was like, I don't have legs. I have no life, but that's not true. The life is what you make it. I am so grateful that I can run, that I can put my blades on and feel the the wind along my face and running through my hair. And that was something that I didn't know that I would ever have a chance to do again. And because I am so grateful that I do have it, it's something that I have to do every day because I just, it empowers me to feel not only good about myself physically, but mentally as well. And what was that first run like for you? I mean, the moment that I had battled with saving my left foot for seven years and I was in excruciating pain for seven years, for seven years. And I had multiple surgeries. My toes were growing back because I was producing so much calcium. So my, the damage is basically, my body was trying to Human fix the Human toes grow back? That's the crazy thing is the bones were cut, but because I was so young and producing so much calcium, my body was trying to fix the damage. So I would basically be growing back toes, but because I didn't have the fat pads that we have on our feet, which are priceless, there's nothing in the world that will ever be that tough of skin. I was basically walking on like pebbles oh my God. and it was an excruciating time. And I couldn't be the athlete that I knew I was and the person that I was, the movements I could do. And, you know, once I let go of that, I was free. I'm just so grateful that I, I'm able to like sit here and be pain-free and to know that I'm better than ever and that with or without legs, I'm going to be all right. Okay. For anyone who doesn't follow you, mm-hmm. where can they find you? You can find me on Instagram. I'm the impossible muse. The impossible me of showing yeah. us what's possible. Yeah, let's go. All know? right. Thank you so much for being here today and for yeah. sharing your story. I really thank you appreciate so much for it. having me. That's it for today's episode of Having It All and Other Lies. I've been having so much fun talking to and learning from all these amazing women, and I hope you're enjoying it too. Please don't forget to subscribe, rate and review, and also follow along at Having It All Podcast and swing on over to my page at Sarah underscore Riff. I love hearing from you guys. So please keep up the DMs and emails. And if there's anyone that you want to hear from, let us know. In the meantime, we will look forward to seeing you next week.